Welcome back to another episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. My name is James Malamas. We've got a great episode for you. Today, we welcome back Dr. Eric Tomlinson and Dr. Lisa Hong, this time to discuss the archetypal symbols and fairy tales, Chapter 19, The Great Mother, Part 3, The Other Worlds. It's a great discussion. We can't wait to hear it. If you enjoy the IFC's Individuation Podcast and want to support, make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. So without any further ado, Dr. El Samurai, take it away. Welcome to another episode of the Individuation Podcast. I am Dr. Lahab El Samurai, and this is the IFC's Individuation Podcast. With me today in the green corner is Dr. Lisa Hong. She's back. She's back, people. I don't know how we did it without her. I know we were short. I know we were kind of like it sounded too, I don't know, um, too serious. And there was not, there was no levity or like smart questions or anything. We just kind of like, anyway. We um, need our thank Lisa. God, thank God she's back. Uh, we thank the gods that uh, yes. her return is marked with um, um, dancing and song. Yes. May the gods be blessed by her presence. Yes. I wish everybody would say that. (laughs) Absolutely. And she would like to bless everybody else with her presence. Since the gods have blessed her, she would like to bless everybody else. So we will take her blessings willingly. Okay. I mean, look at her smile. How can you deny that smile? That's incredible. Uh, Okay, Dr. Eric, go. She must, she must have been on a vacation for the last month or so. She, she <laughs> well, so it did take me out of my own world for a while, <laughs> that's for sure. No. To our listeners, she's been working like a mad, crazy dog. Okay. It was, yeah. All, it was throw everything out the window. We got to push this up front. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how, how, did, how, did the, how did the work turn out? Was it good? Was it bad? Well, I learned a lot, Lahab. <laughs> I learned a lot, and I learned uh, about you know, I'm gonna re, uh, the uh, community. Community is reinforced, and uh, hmm. and nobody's perfect, and you just gotta carry through without bringing in too much negativity because it just helps carry carry things further faster well in a said. situation like that <laughs> no that's a good point I'm not perfect at that either still working on it <laughs> no, 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 no one is my dear no one is <laughs> yeah met a number of people who thought they were but no one is well just when you're dealing with so many different people you're also everybody is coming in with their own stories and their own sensitivities and buttons and their own reads or you know insensitivities and it's really hard to field it all these are the people who helped you with the work there were many people from many aspects because i was uh i had to um take over the lead because my lead melted <laughs> and and then it was just a lot of last minute scrambling and that kind of pressure that's uh, intense. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. I'm still dreaming about it. 
<laughs> I was looking. I'm sorry. I was trying to pay attention. That's okay. I was just. I was looking at the study that we did on the uh, research on Jamp, and the numbers are really, uh, really good. I mean, really good. Um, they are. They are good. Lob. They're better than. They're beautiful. better. Than, they're better than therapy numbers. That's yeah, they're right. beautiful <clears throat> numbers. I mean, what we have. In three, in uh, three, four to five sessions, we have thirty percent change, and um, positive change, and the psychosomatic scale. The PTCI has a change of thirty-four percent, and in session six, the change is beautiful. The change becomes fifty-five percent. Yes. Um, in the somatic scales and forty-seven. Uh, 0.5% in the post-traumatic. Um, I mean, how many people would love to get 50% better after six sessions? Right. That's, that's, uh, well, it shows, I mean, today's, uh, today's, cli uh, today's client, um, his numbers have it like having improved dramatically since we uh, cited the numbers in the study. Yeah, it takes they one. They have improved. It, it's taken, it's taken, uh, we've taken in past six uh, sessions. Unfortunately, I don't think six sessions are added here for, for him or her, but um, still, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, because in, in, in general therapy, uh, you know, it takes, gosh, anywhere from a year to many years to get that kind of, uh, that kind of success at um, not just alleviation of symptoms, but getting to the core of those symptoms and having them be restructured. And that's yeah. what JAMP does. It yeah. changes the structure of those symptoms. It takes, it takes the, uh, takes the uh, patterns of um, negative, uh, reinforced behaviors and um, ways of working in the world. And it uh, drains them of the energy that keeps them together. And therefore, you're freed up um, to behave and interact in the world uh, without being prompted or triggered or uh, anxiety riddled or questioning why you're there, who you're talking to, why are they there? How do I feel about myself? How do I feel about others? You stop asking those questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's self-doubt and self-doubt is treatable. Well, the, you're, you're right. The effect that it's had on me, Lahab, is that it, it, the word is freedom. It's freed up my mind and it's freed up my emotions. And now I can respond in a way that I've always wanted to respond, but was unable to respond because of all the blockages that kept me from doing so. Right. It's, I, but before, I want to comment on what you're saying, Eric, before I do, I want everybody to be able to hear what Dr. Lahab is saying, your microphone is rather low. I'd just is like it? you to check that. Um, I'm having that's lower relatively now. Relatively okay, to where Eric and I are. Yeah. Less, yeah, I just want to 
make sure um, that everybody gets to hear what you're saying because what yeah. you're saying is pretty significant. <clears throat> but to what you're saying, Eric, in terms of um, being triggered again and everything, I kind of I look at it as like a you might feel like you're on a stage and you're performing and interacting with the world and all of a sudden someone takes a hook and yanks you off the stage and drops you into a whole nother world. Yeah. And those situations and triggers or moments that happen where you kind of get taken away from your present moment to somewhere else does, doesn't have to be that big of a pull or yank. It can be just more like a can't or like somebody, that happened, tugging, that's not or like somebody tugging at your shirt and you can you can prevent you can stop that right you can say that was it's there or this is how it used to be but maybe i don't have to fall into yes. that dialogue yes. anymore or yes. that i don't have to continue in that that yes. theater uh, no it's, no it's a good analogy well there's self-doubt and negative self-talk and negative reinforcement then what we have is a situation where um, the person is always conflicted about anything they do, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, I feel conflicted about it. Am I doing it the right way? Is this right? Did I do it right? Did I fix it? Did it work? Uh, are you sure it's a good job? Uh, uh, are you sure that you, um, um, you got what you wanted? Are you sure? Are you sure? Even though I am doing all the work, I am, I am asking for um, um, positive reinforcements all the time because I am unable to use my own because yeah, I can't reinforce myself. You feel like you have no, con you feel like you have very little control over your own thinking and feeling. And your initiative to change it. Because you have no confidence. Exactly. And that it goes back to the negative state, the, the negative schema that is set up through the, uh, the, the trauma. So when the trauma occurs, a negative schema appears. First, it's a dangerous schema. And that schema, I have to defend myself against. So I create all these defensive patterns in my life. Maybe if I had a car accident, maybe it's not driving a car, staying away from crowded streets, uh, being afraid of horns. I mean, all these things. So what happens is, is that I have built my life around the absence of cars, which is almost impossible if you live anywhere in the United States. Um, I'm glad you explained that, Dr. Lahab, because that way, because I, I find that a lot of people think that when you talk about, hmm, have I experienced trauma in my life? A lot of people will say, most, maybe even most people will say, no, I haven't been beaten. I haven't been abused. I haven't had this happen. I haven't had this happen. I haven't, you know, and yet many aspects of their life have traumatized them in, in a, in a more general, subtle way. That's not immediately recognizable as direct trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, uh, um, I was talking to supervising a student of jam today and i was <clears throat> explaining to her that you 
can get traumatized without anybody wanting to traumatize you. Yes. You could be a little child in a house. Your mom is in the bathroom. She sees a mouth. She screams. The little child is terrified because they're very close to their mother. They're terrified. They stand there. They're shaking and they're terrified. They don't know what happened in there. And mother comes out and child finally breaks out in a cry after seeing the mother because all they heard was a scream. What's happened is the child's been traumatized. Now the child's body has just released. Once the child cries, it's just released the energy that was holding the child in shock. So there's this, I am in shock. There's all this energy buildup and I'm paralyzed. I can't really move because I'm in shock. So this might end up being um, that night, that child wets the bed and they haven't wet the bed since they were potty trained. But, you know, um, mother forgets about the mouse. So, but now she's focused on the child because the child has done something they haven't done before. So what happened in that instance? What happened in that instance is finally the child is able to release the tension the child was holding because they are going to bed. After the initial shock, the child did not release the trauma. So when they're going to bed, as they get more and more relaxed, their body becomes more and more relaxed. And therefore, it releases the fluid that it was holding. It's not because the, the child's body is not acting correctly. It's actually acting the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> and we know this. <laughs> we know this. So when we are terrified, our body stops doing stuff. You're not going to pee on yourself. You're not going to crap on yourself. You are in survival mode. You are in fight or flight response. Now, when it's a little child and they're, they haven't let go of that because they're terrified and they're holding, they're holding, they're holding. <clears throat> and suddenly it's time for bed and they're relaxing, relaxing, relaxing. They wake up and they wet the bed. And they wet the bed because of the trauma, the initial trauma that occurred because mother screamed, child didn't know how to answer it, didn't know what to do, froze. Because all the child heard was their parent, the one that protects them, loves them, cares for them, makes them laugh and giggle, scream. And they couldn't see them. They couldn't physically see them. They couldn't see them. They weren't not in light of sight. So anything could have happened. Even though the mother was probably babbling to the child over and over again while she was dealing with her own anxiety and fears. Um, But it's too late for the child because a reality has already occurred. The creation of the trauma has already occurred. So trauma can be created in many different ways. Yeah. Trauma does not have to be me uh, going into a place and getting smacked in the head. Right. The trauma could be that I am walking by and see somebody fall, have a horrendous fall, and then start thinking about my own mortality or, and then my anxiety starts. And 
trauma occurs in different ways to different people, yeah. depending on also depending on how um, how I'm used to like the more sensitive I am, the more I'll be traumatized by something. That's a good point, Dr. Laha, because we have something in our, in our, we have, we have nerve, uh, nerve cells in our brain called mirror neurons. Uh, some people, many people may have heard of those and mirror neurons are something that we can, we can observe something that happens to someone else and those mirror neurons allow us to, it, it's all, they're almost like empathic neurons. They're like an empath. They allow us to feel on almost the same exact level that the person we're observing experiencing what they're going through. And, and our brain registers it as if we are. That, that's, not, that's just incredible. Yeah, it's and, uh, we call about vicarious, uh, vicarious, yeah, vicarious learning, vicarious yeah. trauma. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you come in, somebody comes into your office, sits down, and says, "Oh, by the way, I was just raped by my brother right now," and that like throws everything out the window. You've been trying. I was like, "What? What? What? What?" Even though you're a professional, and that's what you're. You could get traumatized. You could get traumatized by a story. You could get traumatized by a client. You get traumatized just because the client is telling you what happened to them. Um, it doesn't mean the client wanted to traumatize you. The client is trying to work through their stuff. But the way they told the story is traumatic because they were traumatized. Yeah. And you weren't expecting it. You didn't have your defenses up as a therapist. You weren't expecting it. And it happens to you. And then you start talking about it with your colleagues and you start consulting like this happened and I don't know what to do because it caught me by surprise and it brought up a lot of pain for me and I was very angry and so on and so forth. And suddenly it's become, you know, a shared trauma. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of those who survived the death camps passed on their trauma through genes and through storytelling. Yeah. yeah, through second and third and fourth generation, they have passed on. So there's about three, probably four generations by now since the concentration camp. But and, they, you can, and that's a good point. You can yeah. see hyper arousal reactions from their children and grandchildren. Absolutely, 100%. Like they, like they, they experienced the trauma. But what they did is that uh, trauma changes DNA, damages DNA. And therefore, you inherit the damaged DNA uh, from your grandparents and from your great-grandparents. And so you might not have gone through a trauma yourself, but you come from a traumatized family. You were Syrian refugees in modern day, trying to cross. You lost part of your siblings. You only had one parent, you only had one sibling left. So. Um, and you know, Dr. Lahab, even, even people who might, even lis listeners who may say to themselves, you know, I, I never, I, I don't have any of that in my background. It could be something as, as um, 
unpronounced in, in some respects as having lived 10 years of your life and going through many, many failures, Ooh. many, you know, which we think is normal life and we don't view them as traumatic. Uh, and we think that everybody goes through the, those, which everybody does, but if it happens repetitively and over a long period of time, that produces, that's trauma. Yeah, it's like a kid going to going to school, walking to school and being harassed. They're harassed the first day, they're irritated. Second day, yeah. third day, now they're traumatized because they're anticipating people harassing them. They're anticipating yeah. that they're going to be harassed. That in itself becomes a traumatic act. Like those who have lived in totalitarian regimes will tell you because they're constantly um, keeping their mouth shut and worrying about what they say or how they do things because what could happen is you get recorded and the secret police come pick you up and throw you in the gulag. So I don't know, Lisa, um, you've been doing jam for a while. What, what are your thoughts and experiences? um on on the treatment on what you've seen mm, i'm really um the the immediate uh the treatments have been significantly amazing to witness um even from the first to second week, the second to third week, there's always, uh, there's big steps, steps. And then the patient might feel like they're stagnant, but they're still, their thought processes and doors that they're opening are really great steps. Good point. Um, and then there are, there are questions that they're asking. It's, it's been a significant uh, experience for me and um, the individual's willingness to heal and their fight for freedom Good. and their belief in um, self-conservation and um, protecting themselves and also um, regaining our harmonious balance. And you follow that lead and you give them structure, you give them um, pathways of healing, um, through discourse, through jamp, um, that can lead them in a safe way out of their darkness. And, and um, you know, the, it is new, so I'm so interested in longevity studies. It's coming, it, it is rolling. We are getting more and more data. Um, and having, um, after six sessions, the numbers are only getting stronger. Our end counts are stronger. The significance is holding tighter and, and it's, it's um, Champ feels good. That, my friends, is why we wanted Lisa to come back. Right there. You just got it in a nutshell. Thank you, Lisa. You're, that you're, was beautifully you're, stated. Your microphone is either too close or too far from you. You need okay. to bring it closer. I'll move it further away. How's yeah. that? Um, I'm not sure. I think that's what creates the echo. Oh, okay. I think if it's closer to your mouth, then it... Okay. it so you don't want to give a chance for the echo to go and come. So you're talking. Is this anyway, better? Is uh, this better, Dr. Lahab? 
yeah um, yeah yeah maybe okay. uh on a side note um there might be a way to change the peaking in your microphone that cuts it before it starts to reverb and echo oh that's just a little technical i'll turn it a little bit you can tell, tell us tell us tell us more dr hung uh tell us what would you, so one of the um these little negative talks come in many forms now they wear many hats <laughs> it can be <laughs> they can be like a ghost that comes out of a pocket <laughs> one, oh my gosh shock overwhelmed and they can be um a berating poking little brother nag 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 and they can come as a sweet lollipop and you take the lollipop over and over again but each time you feel sick it comes in many 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 forms <laughs> yeah it comes in many forms because it comes from people who have committed something or traumatized you in some way mm -hmm. so other people traumatize other people so this is, so nobody walks out of life without a trauma mm -hmm. nobody not not a human being on this planet is born and gets through life without some traumatic incident happening now uh it could be a really mild one yeah still traumatic incident but everybody walks out of the world with trauma because uh, we're human beings. And uh, as uh, all of you understand, being human is continually screwing stuff up, right? So we screw up our child rearing, we screw up our relationships, we screw up our... That's because um, we haven't gotten it right. We keep working on it, but we haven't gotten it right. So following every up world on religion, that Yeah, every world religion says that suffering is involved in life. All of us suffer. Yeah. Yes. Um, and though the initial onset or reasons for suffering may differ, doesn't mean that one suffering is less than the other. Uh, but that going back into, um, okay, we all don't come out unscathed. So it's like, well, are we hopeless? No. Oh, no. And so the, I think JAMP is a wonderful tool that can be used all the way down to grade school children. Absolutely. We all need the tools to reinforce ourselves, to gather ourselves, to center ourselves, to heal ourselves, to forgive ourselves and others uh, and, and move forward. And I think JAMP is a great tool that can be used uh, as adulthood post deeper levels of um, you know, like wrinkles on your forehead kind of trauma to little cuts and bruises that we grew up with. Absolutely, 100%. And I think what happens, um, Dr. Hong, and as you're talking about treating uh, grade school students, what, what you're doing is you're using the affirmations to help embody the child with confidence, with less uh, negative self-talk, with more positive self-affirmations and self-image and to see the world uh, from a powerful stance, not to be a victim of the universe, but to have power in the universe, to have initiative, to be able to say, I am not afraid. I am protected. I am forgiven. I am self. I am loved. I am worthy. I am beautiful. 
all the things that we deny ourselves, these small words that we deny ourselves every single day, instead of saying, oh, you look good today, you say, oh, I look a little old, my beard is off, it's a little white too much, it's not as, it's not as straight as it should be, you know, maybe I could do something, oh, you know, that constant talk is a cancer. Destructive. Right? Yes. It's a, it's a cell. It's a cancerous cell. And what you're doing every day is you're splitting it. Every time you say, I hate myself, you split it 10 times. Why does it have it happen to me five times? Why is it always my fault? 15 times. And it keeps doing that multiples. And so by the time you become an adult, those have you, you're basically a cancer patient. You need to be treated because parts of your body have been attacked over and over again by a disease that was created not because it was your fault. It was created because something happened that created traumatic reactions that the, the, the psyche decided to disassociate to keep you safe. And because of that disassociation and those patterns that arise, they take over. And in those patterns, they hold you hostage. So in von Franz's book, she talks about the archetypal father. Then she talks about the archetypal mother. She'll talk about the archetypal daughter and the archetypal son. At the beginning, she talked about the archetypal aspects of nature. She talked about the archetypal symbols um, that are embedded within all our psyches. As we told story after story from one end of the world to the other end of the world, from um, the Amazon to Siberia to Africa, all these stories told us over and over again, the archetypal symbols, the, all those symbols create a story. All those symbols create our story as humanity, as how we got to this point as a people, as an organism. We are the most dominant organism on this planet and we're killing ourselves. We got to be the most dominant, we control everything, but now that we control everything, we are killing everything. Yes, we are. Right? So what happens is, when we are traumatized, we are trying to control the trauma. And after a long period of time without treatment, controlling the trauma creates damage. That young advanced motor processing repairs. I mean, part of the telling, telling everybody about these stories telling them about the pain, the suffering, the different, 
um, how you get into the spirit world, how you leave the spirit world. These are aspects of psyche that are hard to focus on if you haven't gotten treatment. Because what you hear, and this is like uh, what happens to you when you go to um, therapy school in your first year, you start diagnosing everybody around you. As soon as you have the diagnostics class, oh, they're borderline. Oh, <sighs> oh, they're sociopathic. Oh, because everybody looks like something, right? It's patterns. Because we have all those patterns. Those patterns make up who we are. And when we're traumatized over and over again at a very young age, those patterns have a tendency to push us in a certain road. So if we were violently beaten, we become sociopathic because we have lost touch with our physical entity that is the body because the body is always the prisoner. See, the psyche could split off. The psyche could say, I'm not here. I don't know what happened. The body still has to feel whatever pain is dished out. The body has a memory. Now, the Jungians, we talked about this in uh, Stein and in Map of the Soul. Um, the psychoid realm is basically the psyche of the body. So all its memories, its feeling states, its interactions in the world, it's feelings of getting cold, getting hot, being picked up, being hurt, being burned. All these things stay. And the psychoid realm remembers. The body remembers. For instance, if you, if you put your finger on a wound and you rub it long enough, you start to remember. Um, your body actually starts to re recall for you. Oh, that happened when you were 10. Remember? You drop the knife and you put your hand trying to catch it. And suddenly the body remembers. I don't remember. The body's telling you. You're like, yeah, yeah, that happened at age 10. Yeah, yeah, I call myself that. Must... But that's not your story. That's the body's story. The body remembers. The body remembers the pain. So what Jamp also does is it frees the body. It frees the body of the pain that the psyche is holding on to. The psyche is holding on to fear. The body is feeling fear. The body is feeling fear in ways like, oh, I don't think I'm going to go out tonight. Uh, I check the door, but I really need to check it again just in case I need to lock it. Um, should I lock my room? Um, am I safe? This is what happens. So the body is the victim, right? And the psyche is the victimizer, but it's all one person. It's all the totality of the self. <clears throat> and until we bridge those two aspects, until we bring in and relieve the body of its pain, and trust me when I say, and you should try this out yourself, you should come to us and we will take you through the pain release cycle. 
the pain release cycle, whatever pain you have in your body, we could take that away. Through the treatment. And why do we say we could take it away? Because it does not belong to the body. It's not an injury to the body. This is a psychic injury. Yeah. That has translated itself into um, psychosomatic symptoms, we call them. And maybe you could explain this, Dr. Lahab, but a little bit more. But um, interestingly enough, and most people that have gone through JAMP, um, it's very obvious that the first several sessions, it's the body issues that get healed first. So maybe, maybe you could speak to that. I think that supports what you're saying. Well, we, we start we start with we start concentrating on relieving the body. So so as as somebody said, the, the body keeps the score. I can't remember who it was, but the body is keeping score of how much pain you're in. So the first thing you have to do is help the body relax, help. So you're you're an animal. Yeah. So those who have pets understand this. You're an animal, and here's your dog, your cat. They sit in your lap. You hear the doorbell, and you jump in the air. The dog starts to bark, and you yell at the dog. Now the dog is nervous. Now every time the bell rings, the dog is going to start barking because it's anticipating you're going to bark at it, right? Because the animal learns very quickly, instinctually, how to defend its territory. So you're its master. It doesn't want to get into it with you, but it's still, it's anxious now. Yes, it is. Because you're anxious. Because the doorbell alarmed you more than it alarmed the dog. And your reaction is what alarmed the animal. Right? We have, we, we have the same exact responses as a dog, as a cat. They feel pain. They feel hurt. They feel unloved. They feel left out. They feel cradled. They feel secure. And you could tell. You could tell. Even those people who have pets, you could tell the pets that are pretty much okay. They do their own thing. And you could tell the, the pets that are anxious um, and how they need to calm themselves down. Usually pets that are really anxious are in your face. They're trying to calm themselves down. They just, they're, they're not, they, they need to um, smell you. They need to sense you in their space long enough so they could calm down. That's yeah, what they're they react doing. To, they react to everything. Yeah, that's what they're doing. They're, they're just jumping up and down because you're in their space and your smell is different than theirs. It's like entering Legos. It's like visiting somebody you've never visited before. For the cat or dog, that's the case. They haven't met you before. You've entered their domain. This is their grounds. 
So just things to think about. We're, we're very sensitive to um, the way the world um, treats us. And in most places, the world is not a very nice place. So we want to, I, I want to just talk about that because we're talking about the great mother and the great mother in von Franz's story is um, the personal mother, Gaia, the cosmos, the universe, the gods, right? These are all mother symbols. These are symbols of the great mother. And I think we got into it uh, last week. Says, um, she says uh, in the archetypal symbols in fairy tales, the earth is an image of the mother in the broadest sense. Um, when you're buried into the, when you're buried in the earth, it's the equivalent of being engulfed by the mother. So there's two things that happen to you when you're being buried. If you've ever been on the beach and been buried, like friends have buried you in sand and your head's sticking out, two things happen. One is this amazing calmness that occurs. You're really calm. You're being buried, but you're really calm because there's a womb-like effect to being buried. So we react to it as safe at first, but then as you physically, you're physically bigger and older now. So now if you feel like you're trapped under the sand, you start to freak out, a different reaction occurs. So with that, we, we keep the image of the great mother it is the strange, uh, she says, um, she talks about what, how many faces the mother has. Who is this mother? Who, what does she look like? How can we know she's a mother? And so symbolically in the world, we call things mothers of symbolically like the, the mother of the the mother of the telephone or in this case the father of the telephone or the mother of uh, IBM or the mother of it's a birth it's a birth of a creation so it's always looked at as the mother it's a creation And you become the mother of that creation when you put it on this planet. It doesn't matter what it is, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, we say our mother planet. We don't say our father planet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The mother is the source. She is the... Um, the source of life. She says the land beyond the unconscious with all its alluring and threatening aspects swallows him up. 
The same process, the destruction of the vital divine force of mankind by the mother fixation is also described briefly in the short fairy tale, The Other World. So we're going to get into this fairy tale. And um, it's on page 237. It starts on paragraph 595. We're going to get into this fairy tale. Because what we're trying to get to is who is the mother? How do we understand her? How do we recognize her? How do we see her? How do we relate to her? For instance, right now, we are poisoning the great mother. We poisoned her oceans. We poisoned the land. We burned. We have killed her animals. We're at war with the mother. So if this is an age of um, we are the dominant species on this planet and our activities affect the planet, period. We, change, we, we are increasing the temperature of this planet because of our activities, our factories, our use and abuse of fossil fuels when we have the biggest energy producer in the cosmos on top of us, which is the sun. We keep digging out stuff and burning it that should be remained locked in into the land. We keep burning it and releasing it back to the atmosphere. We have opportunities to change those things. And this is where the fairy tale comes in. The fairy tale is a story about change the fairy tale is a story that tells you how things change how just our aspects of consciousness changes our story how feeling better after a jam treatment helps us create another story maybe a relationship Maybe going somewhere where I've never gone before because I was too afraid. Maybe saying hi to somebody and I've never been able to say hi to people because I'm afraid they will talk to me. Maybe I am not afraid anymore to talk back. This is why we keep using the affirmation, I am not afraid. This is one of the main reasons is that we have to be in this world. We have to face this world together. And we have to remind ourselves that we are born into this world from the great mother. So this is the, this is the blessing and the curse. You come from the great mother, that means you respect and take care of the great mother. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, we have decided that the rules do not apply to us and that we can do whatever we want, which has been proven over and over again. Um, I think in recently in Afghanistan, after 20 years, that we can't do what we want. We have to understand how to be able to understand other human beings. For 20 years, they gave up that country in a night and a day. 20 years they controlled it. They started in the evening, they started moving. By morning, they had the country. 
It didn't even take a whole week. It's like a couple of days. Okay. What does that say besides as a political catastrophe? What, what does it say? It shows that psychologically we're naive. It shows that we don't learn from history. Because the, the British could have told you Afghanistan was not governable. The Russians could have told you. The Mongols could have told you. That country has never been invaded successfully. Never. In the history of that country. History. There's a pattern. And the only way to clear the pattern is to do something completely different. And what we did was the same. We basically reinforced the pattern. We have a timeline. We're going to be out of here. You're going to have to take care of yourselves. Okay. Like bad parents in a hurry to kick the child outside the house. Well, I can't wait till you're 18 and go to college. Ends up in prison. Oh, I can't wait till you're 18 and move out and go into the dorms. They move into the strip club. Abuse. Trauma. So this creation of ours, which is, we call them humans, this creation is running amok without consciousness. And when there is no consciousness, when consciousness is a problem, when consciousness is at risk, what happens is a whole population of people get traumatized. When we're not conscious of what we're doing, when we're just rushing ahead, when we do it over and over again and say, oh, I think we screwed up. Um, that should have been reflected about like the next day. But unfortunately, like great nations or great states or we are the same. 20 years later, we decide, well, this is not working. I'm going to leave. The problem is the problem doesn't go away. Just because you leave. That problem, every time you look in the mirror, what did you call it, Dr. Eric? You called it uh, mirroring neurons. Every time you look in the mirror, every time you see a news report, every time you see this country falling apart, you remember your part. It doesn't go away. So in the story, what's eloquent about the story is that the story has an ending. And a beginning. What's unique about our story? We don't know our ending yet. We're always running after the ending. We're always trailing. We know our beginning. We're told our beginnings over and over again, but the ending is always the problem. So, uh, Dr. Eric, you're going to read this fairy tale for us? Be happy to. 
Ready? Yeah, yeah. The other world. There once was a little child whose mother gave her every afternoon a small bowl of milk and bread. And the child seated herself in the yard with it. But when she began to eat, a toad came creeping out of a crevice in the wall, dipped its little head in the dish, and ate with her. The child took pleasure in this. And when she was sitting there with her little dish and the paddock did not come out at once, she cried, Toady, Toady, come swiftly. Hither come, thou tiny thing. Thou shalt have thy crumbs of bread. Thou shalt refresh thyself with milk. Then the toad came in haste and enjoyed its food. It even showed gratitude, for it brought the child all kinds of pretty things from its hidden treasures, bright stones, pearls, and golden playthings. The toad drank only the milk, however, and left the breadcrumbs alone. Then one day the child took its little spoon and struck the toad gently on its head and said, Eat the bread, the bread crumbs as well, little thing. The mother who was standing in the kitchen heard the child talking to someone. And when she saw that she was striking the toad with her spoon, ran out with a log of wood and killed the good creature. From that time forth, a change came over the child. As long as the toad had eaten with her, she had grown tall and strong. But now she lost her pretty rosy cheeks and wasted away. It was not long before the funeral bird began to cry in the night and the red breast to collect little branches and leaves for a funeral wreath. And soon afterwards, the child lay on her bier. B-I-E-R, not B-E-E-R. Okay. So we started this podcast by talking about Jungian advanced motor processing and treatment and treatment for trauma. So what do we have in this story? In this story, we have a trauma. Remember when we talked earlier about she wasn't the direct object that was traumatized. She was actually indirectly traumatized. She was vicariously traumatized to the mother by killing the toad, by killing her friend, her companion, her... Um, eating buddy, somebody she could share with, somebody she can feed. In a lot of ways, she is being a mother to the toad. Um, Fran says, the story contains a piece of primitive mentality. 
because the toad represents through participation mystique, the vital center of the little girl herself. The toad gives her golden toy showing that it represents the richness of the child's fantasy life. It symbolizes a part of her unconscious soul when her mother kills it. She commits murder of the soul of the child, similarly to the killing of Meryl's clay child in his fantasy life. Significant is the fact that as a frog or toad is known mother symbol, the toad often symbolizes the uterus. The Chinese see it in connection with the moon in which sits a three-legged rain toad named Teishan, a parallel figure to the rapid in the moon that brews the elixir of life. The maternal significance of the toad is of course not limited only to its positive aspects. The toad is also the animal of the witch. Through her uncomprehending behavior, the real mother in the other world kills the life-giving archetype of the mother in the child. The intimate, necessary, and natural connection between real mother and child, which is based on the symphonic archetype of the mother, is cut there by the child's vital connection to life. So the mother, so the, the toad is also the mother, is teaching the child how to eat. It's leaving the crumbs of the bread for the child. It wants the child to eat. It takes away what she doesn't want, which is the milk. While in some of the previously discussed tales, the mother Imago was overcome either by magic, by trickery, open combat, or by the hero successful fleeing before it. The mother Imago in other tales, it overpowers him in contrast. So the mother Imago is, is this great mother, right? It's, uh, the Jungians use the term Imago. Um, It's, it's a word that they use that um, basically talks about the archetypal pattern of the mother, the mother imago, the father imago, it's pattern. <clears throat> um, in the story, right, there's a good mother and there's a bad mother. Mm -hmm. There's a loving mother and there's a scary mother. There's a life-giving mother and there's a life-taking mother. So I, I remember this because uh, something similar happened when we were kids. We had all these um, fish. And four of them started growing legs. We were little kids. They're tadpoles. We didn't know what they were. We just knew they were getting legs. We got so excited. You know, because there was transformation. One minute it's a fish, the next minute it has legs, like hind legs. I'm like, what the fuck is, what, what is happening here? 
right? So I thought, you know, so we left for the day. We came back, we found a brick and the toads and the tadpoles were under the brick. She didn't even toss them in the garbage or hide them from us. Uh, it was a little traumatic. I'm sorry, love. <laughs> so you knew who your mother was. You took it right away, like, yeah, don't mess with her. You might end up like the tadpole under a brick. God bless your heart, mom. No um, transformation in this uh, house. <laughs> yeah, I know. No transformation. We are trying. We are stopping transformation as nobody's transforming. Nobody's getting older. Nobody's getting younger. Let's keep everything the same. She used to say, her thing was, they were so cute when they were just swimming. It's when they got their legs that they became a problem. I don't remember them becoming a problem, but um, I'm sure I don't remember the whole story. I was traumatized by it. So maybe the brother remembers a different version of the story. That's what I remember. So. We'll have to ask the brothers for their recollection of the story. But it reminded me of the story. And, um, and the way I thought of my mother. You know, she was the most benign being in the world. She couldn't hurt anybody. And she's like, after that incident, that changed. That relationship was never the same. Um, you know, you're a kid and life for you is something that is fresh and new yeah. and seeing it squashed like that is uh, gut-wrenching. You know, your heart drops into your stomach. You're like, what the hell is that? Why? Mm -hmm. Why did they kill why didn't they just leave them? Why am I afraid of my mom now? Why, yeah, she's scared. <laughs> when really your mom yeah, was she didn't to have to, you. But she decided. Keep, keep you clean. She decided that this was you uh -huh. know, what she was going to do. Mm -hmm. Like that, that mother was, here's a dirty toad eating my daughter's food. Yes, my food. And she's inviting, she's inviting a... Uh, uh, you know, a, a freeloader into the house. She doesn't know it yet in her innocence and ignorance. Exactly. She's eating my food. Mm -hmm. and, and interestingly enough, every human fetus at one point in time during its development has a tail. tail. And it's a tadpole tail. Yes. Just like a tadpole. Well, yes. I, I think I think our, I, I think it was um, I think it was an archetypal reaction. I think it was out of fear. Like something strange is happening and um, I don't want these kids to freak out or something like that. I, I don't, I'm not sure, or maybe she was scared of, I'm not really sure why she like slaughtered the tadpoles, but I know maybe there was- she has a story that you don't know about. Well, what, what happens, <laughs> exactly. And what happens in the, what happens in the water is that the goldfish end up dying after the after tadpoles. That, after the tadpoles are removed? The goldfish, we find each, there were, there were two or three 
ended up belly up in the morning, one after the other. No. So by the third day, they were all gone. Mm. It was very interesting. It was one of those kind of non-consequential events you think about. And then later, you know, you're reading von Franz and you're like, oh, shit. I had a mother who killed the toad also. But she didn't give it a chance to, like, drink the milk. So, um, the many different aspects of the great mother. Life-giving, life-taking, annihilation, um, life-conferring, growth, change. Docile and menacing. Menacing, <laughs> destructive, uh-huh. destructive, uh, vengeful, um, benign. To, to yeah, loving, part, to safe caring, to, empathic. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we got into it last week, uh, Lisa. We were talking about it. We were talking about how. Um, how the the mother after having the child changes her personality changes she transforms into somebody else mm. she her instincts the instincts that arise in her are very different than the instincts she had when she was just one person the way she behaves the way she goes into the world the way she walks into the world the way she sees the world now she sees the world in a very different way mm-hmm. she sees herself as a bodyguard Mm-hmm. Right, and she has this, um, what she thinks of as a young innocent child. Mm-hmm. So those young innocent children grow up to be very menacing people at times, but when they're in their cribs, they're young innocent children. Yeah, you but know. then you get like three kids versus one. It's a whole other game changer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why she doesn't react on number two as she did with number one. <laughs> now it's like, uh, well, I didn't kill him, so you could just do your thing. So I like the I like the fact that it says, um, as long as the toad had eaten with her, she had grown tall and strong. But now after the death of the toad, she lost her pretty rosy cheeks and wasted away. Mm. And, and, and how many times have we either seen or experienced this when a parent does something that, that kills or destroys, or, or maybe not even kill or destroy, just maim a part of their insides, a part of who they are that from that point forward, that part of them wastes away. It doesn't continue to grow. It doesn't continue to flourish. That's what gets stunted, right, in the trauma? It is stunted. It is is stunted because now what what was my life force, my life-giving life force, the force that brought me into the world, that took me... um, into this place that made me um, a mother 
because the little baby is basically mothering the toad that made me a mother to this creature. And here is my mother killing my creature, killing this thing that I got attached to, killing me. How could she kill this little innocent thing? How could she kill it? I, she feeds it milk, right? And she wants to feed it more. She's, she's looking out for the child. She wants it to eat the breadcrumbs. But as soon as we know that she hit, as soon as she uses the spoon to hit the head of the toad, uh, we know it's going to go south very quickly because she she hits the toad. And a little kid doesn't know how to, like they don't hit the animal. This is something learned and you got hit. It's a very quick thing, very quick reaction. Eat. This is how we predict, this is how, this is why we have so many eating disorders. It's this insistence on um, how food is consumed that messes the children psychologically. What they should eat, how much they should eat of it, how they need to clean their plate, all this stuff. This is detrimental to the child's development. Children are very instinctual. They will eat when they're hungry. They will stop eating when they're not. There's no need to keep forcing stuff down their throat. They're not going to starve themselves. They're instinctual beings. They will eat. They will notice that they're hungry. They will eat. They will cry. They will tell you they want food. They will eat. There is no need for you to make the child eat. Children do not go on hunger strikes. Let me repeat that again. Children do not go on hunger strikes. Children who have been abused go on hunger strikes. Children who um, are having a difficult time with a very um, combative or contradictory or confl conflictual parent will go on hunger strike. Because hunger, basically, when I go on strike and say I'm not going to eat, I am telling the mother that her food is no good for me that her love is, I don't want it. I'm rejecting it. Because food is equated with love. Food is the initial act of love to the child. That's the first act the child realizes that's love. I have this huge hole in my stomach. I don't know why I'm here. I am cold. I am screaming. I am yelling. I've just been traumatized by this light. And this warm liquid comes into my mouth from this breast, and suddenly I'm quiet, I am calm. I'm not scared. And then what happens is that food becomes an issue. And you could tell how it develops. I mean, it's very like simple falling down a very narrow incline of stairs. You miss a step and then you roll down the rest of the steps all the way to the bottom. You know, the step you missed. It's a power struggle. 
it, it's absolutely is a power struggle and it's not about the food no it's, it's more about problem. me yeah mm -hmm. you know if you when once the person of authority uses it as a manipulative tool of negotiation for their ulterior motive and the child learns the game then they're in yeah but then <laughs> it, becomes, it becomes a fight between the parent and the child yeah and i've seen children who don't have an eating problem but their food is everywhere their face <laughs> is covered in food the food is everywhere they're picking cereal out of the sides of um the car seat the car seat <laughs> put it in their mouth and you're telling them to spit it out um but I've also seen kids who sit there who um, are basically, they look cleaner than most dining adults. That's not a good thing. Little babies, little kids, they're animalistic. You have to let them be themselves. They will grow to mimic you. They will grow to do what you do. Give them an opportunity. Don't jam it, shove it, kick it, or stuff it down their throats. They'll do it. Because it's a simple, it's a simple formula. We need food. We don't need people to keep putting foods in our mouth at a very young age, it's not a good idea. It's just not a good idea. The child's hungry, feed it. The child's not hungry, don't argue with it. They'll get hungry and they'll tell you they wanna eat. Now that doesn't mean you should feed them like junk. It's a different issue. They don't know what junk is. They will eat what you give them and they will get it. They will start to like what you give them. So if you give them a lot of sugar and a lot of salt, they'll enjoy it. They'll not want anything else. Yes, they will. But if you don't give it to them, they don't know what that is. They'll enjoy eating whatever you're cooking. So just things to think about. Um, I, I've heard and of this practice with uh, young people where you let the child cry for the night so they could sleep in their own crib. Do not do that. Absolutely do not do that. This is, um, this is torture for the baby. You are torturing the child if you let the child sit there and cry. The child is uncomfortable. Once the child is comfortable, they will fall asleep. It's just part of life. From the age of zero to about two, you're not going to sleep. It's just a part of life. Get over it. Don't have children if you don't want that part. But to leave kids in their own room, sitting in their own crib with the door closed, waiting for them to cry themselves out or I don't know what they're calling it right now, acclimate or something weird. That is just bad science. That is bad. That is bad psychology. That's bad developmental theory. That's just bad. Don't do it. 
<clears throat> you will traumatize that child beyond repair. They will be terrified. You will not self-soothe them because you're waiting them to cry themselves out. They will burn themselves out. And that's for them, for the little child, for that baby, is like going through hell. They get afraid of the dark. They get afraid of being alone. Everything. Uh, they can and then even... you, you end up at age five and six dealing with their fears. You know, You're the ones you. who created they them. <laughs> they feel insecure about their yeah, <laughs> immediate surroundings. They don't know how to, um, like you said, self-soothe yeah, they or ask they're... for comfort. They, they never ask. No. No, and that's when they start to develop um, so when they don't ask for comfort, Lisa, what happens is, is this is when these things start to develop into cutting. Yeah. So I can't be comforted. How do I comfort myself? Well, I can't stand my skin. So I cut deep into it and I bleed out. And suddenly I feel a little relieved because I force myself to feel the pain or they overeat or they withdraw Train, or they become aggressive drugs they become sexually active early on and they they create disaster for their life um they end up with people who take advantage of them who mistreat them because they pretend to like them and because these kids have a hard time feeling okay about themselves I need to, I just need to interject just because you are, are exhausted and maybe you're not immediately there or let the kid cry out doesn't mean these things are going to happen. No, 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 This no, is based no, on I, a practice and no, decision no, making that reflects no. that isolation mentality. This is conscious. Not, yeah, this is a. Yeah. This is conscious where the couple basically, um, forces the child to deal with its own rage mm -hmm. and fear. And, uh, and the child ends up like, yeah, they end up being quiet just because they're burnt out and because nobody listens to them and because you're idiots. <laughs> so unnecessary. Do not do it. Yeah for your child's sake, for your sake, for all the mental health bills you're going to pick up later and all the bad things that are going to happen to this kid who's going to drive you nuts. By the way, this is a shared experience, right? So if your child grows up in a household where they don't feel safe, they're going to drive you nuts. Because, because it's not feeling safe in the house. It's feeling safe in your own body. We have to feel safe in our own body. And the way that's done is very, very simple. We hold the child. The child needs to be held. The child was separated, physically separated. The child hasn't gotten used to physically separating. The child needs to be held so the child can feel held and thus 
the child after a period of time starts to know how to feel calm because my mom makes me feel calm. And then she doesn't like have to pick me up anymore. She could put her arm around me or my dad could put his hand on my head and that will make me calm. Mm -hmm. And then one day, you know, I'll be rubbing my beard. That makes me calm. That's like the parent holding you. You know, some people pet their hands or do this. This is all tactile. This is all from when you were a baby. This is what keeps you calm. So when you see somebody who's jittery, jumping, don't tell them that they're being jumpy and jittery and understand that's what helps them maintain themselves. Understand that this is instinctual. And I think we miss the instinctual part and we start to rationalize it like it doesn't exist. And the way we abuse, the way children are abused is by not trusting their instinctual part, which means that we end up not trusting ourselves. Like, well, uh, how do I feel about this? Uh, I don't know. Because I always don't know. I was entrusted to be me. I was entrusted to run out and scream or run or play or, you know, yeah, eat my food, throw up. my food. You know, it's just simple stuff. Yeah, Dr. Lahab, I'm glad you brought up the systematic intervention aspect of it too, because no, because I know that you or none of us are saying that you need to go in there and hold your kid for eight hours, uh, you know, but There's you a, can no need for extreme. The child right. needs to be held to feel sure safe. And then the and child then, at a young age needs to be next to the parent at yeah. most of the time. The child needs to be there for the first yeah. two years. You're going to be exhausted. I was watching a, a father and a baby and the baby was like playing with its uh it's playing with its rattle and it's sucking on milk. And the father's head is like this. That's how it is. That's what you signed up for. You want to have a baby? That's what you get. For two years, you can't sleep. Give it up. Get ready. That's how it works. And then you're not going to be able to sleep because you're always worried about them. That's the other part. These are, these are aspects of, you know, when we lived in bigger groups, there were many people to take care of the child. Yes. Yeah, little sister, little brother, an aunt, uh, an older cousin, um, a kid who's a couple of years older than the child. They keep an eye on the child and play with it. And so the, the child learns to be part of a group and negotiate with the group. Most of our kids are being raised by one parent. So they're very socially isolated. They don't know how to uh, communicate. This is the other problem, right? We have a lot of kids um, who are not around a lot of people. So when they get to school, this is completely overwhelming because they've been protected. 
and because of just natural situations in the family. There's a one parent and, you know, um, there's not that many children. There's just one child. So what happens to the child? Well, the child learns to um, withdraw, self-isolate, become self-protective, become defensive, and becomes highly... Um, resistant to social interaction yes they don't trust others no because they they don't have that experience right they don't have an experience with other everybody else is dangerous you know they could do things not that they don't end up trusting the wrong people anyway they do uh, it takes them a while but usually these kids at school um end up getting in all kinds of trouble they get picked on, they get beaten up, they get isolated, they get socially discarded, they get uh, bullied, you know, especially for boys. For girls, they get more isolated, they're more alone. Not that they don't get bullied, they do get bullied. But for boys, it's right away, boys become very physically aggressive, trying to defend their territory. What happens with girls is that they withdraw and become more depressed. So now you have all these different dynamics. Now that can be vice versa. The boy could withdraw and the girl could become more aggressive. Mm -hmm. But you also have to remember culturally, we encourage certain things. Like it's okay to be aggressive if you're a boy. It's not okay to be aggressive if you're a girl. So that's looked down upon. You have to talk about it. So that influences the situation also, which makes it more difficult for the children because they don't understand these archaic rules. They're just children. They're not conscious of the way the constructs are um, oppressing them from the construct that everybody has to sit on a chair for eight hours a day, that construct. It's terrible constructs. It's terrible schooling. Doesn't work. There's a school in Japan. So in Japan, there's a school. It's it's the inside outside school. The middle of the school is this huge tree. And everything in the school is like ropes and bridges and and the kids jump up and down and walk across the bridges and come. They sit on the floor, they don't sit on desks and they go play and then they come back for whoever is doing a lesson for 15, 20 minutes and then they go back and do their same thing. <clears throat> they don't sit the entire time. They do what naturally comes to a child, which is explore, climb, run, take chances, take risks. So these these bridges are rope bridges. They're really high. And guess what? None of the children fall. Because nobody scared them from it. Nobody's made them conscious that it's scary. So they don't fall. It's normal. And they're able to do it. They're physically able to do it over and over again. Um, if you get a chance, this is one of, this is uh, an amazing school. 
if you get a chance to look at the architecture of the school, it's fascinating. Uh, I recommend it highly. Uh, I'll get you the name of the school next time. I always end up talking about it and not remembering the architect or the, but architecturally it's built to be a natural environment. Like you're in the woods or you're in uh, a park. You're not in a school. So these experiences, these things that we're doing now to kind of change these uh, constructs that are ancient, um, that don't work anymore. I mean, the reason schools were set up in this way was because we were getting them ready for the factories. And if you look in Chicago, if you look at the schools and the way the architecture is built, they look like factories. The old ones really do. Yeah, they yeah. look like factories. They look yeah. like factory warehouses. Yeah, they do. I mean, that's changing. But in the big cities, I bet in New York, in New Jersey, probably, um, in Los Angeles, in places where there was a huge industrial component, these schools very much are taught, we're basically teaching kids how to be on the assembly line. It's even the way we teach them. It's the way we teach them, it's the way we sit them, one behind the other. They're on assembly lines. And so they go to the front, they get what they need, they go back to their seat and sit. And so basically what you're doing is you're teaching them that your task is to remain in your place for the entire day. Because on the belt, right, in the assembly line, everybody stands in position. You don't leave your position. You stand in your position and you do the work until there's a break. You leave your position and walk to the break. If you take another position, that position is going to be somewhere else. Somebody else takes your position and you start again. So these are the old films. You look at them. It's the same way. This is what. So concept school. Is. Uh, an ancient concept that needs to be and has in the past. I mean, the original schools, the original universities were basically um, walking conversations. A lot of the groups would walk behind somebody and they would have a conversation and the conversation would go on. They would go get some food and they continue the conversation and they get some wine and they continue the conversation. And at a certain point, the conversation would end and we'll see you tomorrow. And it was, that was school. This school now is, <clears throat> what do you, I mean, the first smells that come to me when I walk into a school, um, erasers, um, a sweet stink. I think it's like some kind of cleaning. They must use some kind of chemical to clean because it smells sweet, but it's still, you know, it's a chemical. So it's, yeah. 
Um, and you hear the children. And they don't sound happy. They don't. You could, you could sense the energy of the place as you're walking into it. You could sense if the, if the population is happy or not. You can sense because you have kids who can't sit still. You have kids who can't sit still. Does that mean the kids who can sit still should be able to get a decent life and the kids who can't sit still go to the army? Go get killed? What? Do what? Become cops? What, what do they do? What, how, how do they? Because basically this is how we're distinguishing um, we're distinguishing who is uh, productive and who is um, useful in society. Oh, he's going to be somebody. Oh, she's going to be somebody. Oh, he's not going to be anybody. And who can follow the rules? Well, that's exactly right. Part of the factory style. You follow the rules. You always follow the rules. What did I say? What did I do? Yes, miss. You could hear them all yell. How do we say it? How do we do it? Ancient. Ancient, yeah. because the kids are not. Kids learn by exploring. By playing with things. By picking worms out of the ground and staring at them and saying, what is this? Why is this here? This is how they learn because now they're interested in the story. Now you can tell them a story about how rich the soil is, that, the, that these little worms can grow in it and how everything can grow because of these little worms and how these worms um, feed everything and keep bugs off. So all these things are lost. But if I bring you a worm and put it down on your desk and say, that's a worm it comes from the ground and you poke it with your pencil because it's dead, it just doesn't work. Does not work. With that, I am gonna call it a day because we kind of like went over our time a little bit and we made this a long discussion. So, next glad you're week, back, Lisa. We are very glad you're back, Lisa. Next <laughs> week, we will do the last uh, installment of The Great Mother. We will pick out another couple of fairy tales for you, and we will go through them. And then, the week after, we are going into the image of the demonic sun, the shadow. We're going to talk about the shadow. So it's going to get really fun um, as we come to the conclusion of von Franz's book. Um, we talk about the demonic sun, the shadow, and then we talk about the anima. So, hey, Dr. Lahab? Yes. Can I, can I say something? <coughs> I'm sorry. Can I tell you something? Do I have a choice? Yeah. Hey, you got a choice. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> just kidding. Go ahead. I just wanted you and Lisa to know 
that I am not afraid. I am not afraid. I am not afraid. <laughs> we are the Institute for Conflict. We are, this is the Individuation Podcast. I am Dr. Lahab El Samurai. That's Dr. Eric Tomlinson. And this is Dr. Lisa Hong. And we shall be back next week for another episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Eric, Lisa, and Dr. El Samurai. We'd also like to thank Eric and Lisa for taking the time to join us. We hope you enjoyed this chapter from Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales. Tune in next time to the IFC's Individuation Podcast for another episode soon. at the Institute of Conflict greatly appreciate all of you listeners. Please share the podcast with your friends and spread the word. If you would like to help expand our community, like us on Facebook and Instagram and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Sonia Mahmood and you've just listened to the Institute of Conflict Individuation Podcast. We'll be back soon.